That meteor spinning out the sky looks really good right now, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, Fox News is just pure propaganda. Oh, good lord. Fox News is just, oh, so painful. Makes me giggle a little bit, to be fair. That's a good thing. Well, thank God, at least. <laughs> <laughs> of all the horrible things happening yeah. and the just blatant lies and propaganda from Fox News, at least it's making you giggle. Hey, hey, you know what? I gotta take my happiness from somewhere in this world, and if not at Fox News' expense, then whose, sir? Whose, I ask you. <laughs> I don't blame you, Steven. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Orientalist Express podcast. This is the show that brings together young professionals from all around the world to discuss topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, and international relations. The goal of this project is to make American foreign policy easier to understand for people who don't normally follow it too closely. I'm Nicholas Hayen, the founder of the Orientalist Express blog and website. Joining me today in the virtual studio are two of our usual contributors. We have Stephen Howard. Good morning. And Valida Azamatova. Hello, everybody. Be sure to check out the official Orientalist Express website at orientalistexpress.com to read more about the team. At the end of the Cold War, historians and policy scholars began to contemplate what the end of the bipolar world would mean for the future of humanity. Some, like Francis Fukuyama, believed that we had reached the, quote, end of history, where all nations would embrace the economic and political liberalism that had triumphed in the United States, Western Europe, and much of the former Soviet Union. Another, Samuel Huntington, believed instead that conflict among people would simply take a new form. In his thesis, the, quote, Clash of Civilizations, Huntington believed that, rather than fighting over economic models like communism or capitalism, or political models like democracy or authoritarianism, that people would instead begin to lose these strong national and political identities and instead fight along cultural lines. So these cultures would inevitably clash with each other and bring about a new fault line for global conflicts. His ideas were and sometimes continue to be accepted by many prominent foreign policy decision makers. So, is the world really headed towards a clash of civilizations, or is Huntington just another naive scholar? Well, I don't think you can really call him naive, but... I, I think to an extent he was a little bit off base. And I, I, I will, I guess, uh, hedge my words because I do actually agree with a little bit of what he wrote. And when I say a little bit, if you read the book, probably the first half of the book, I agree with probably 75% of. The latter half of the book, I probably agree with 10% of. And so it, I had a, actually had a conversation with Lita about this. I think as he kept going, he just, I don't know, he, he, he had some ideas and he just started throwing them down on the paper. And I don't think it was a really good idea. But uh, some of his ideas of culture being a universal pull, I do think are, to a large extent, correct. I think he overestimates the power of cultural pull. And how I would like to phrase it is more of in scientifically. So you have the strong force and the weak force in science, the strong force being electromagnetism, the weak force being gravity. And the, the idea is that the strong force, 
will always be more powerful than obviously the weak force, but the weak force is always more prevalent than the strong force. So you can always beat gravity. Uh, you can jump up right now or stand up and you're defeating gravity, but it doesn't mean you can ever escape it. And that's what I think is kind of happening in the world and how what he doesn't really focus on is that I, I do believe that cultural affinity is a weak force in the world. It is It can be easily beaten by national interest, by competing security interest, by really any other interest. It's not that strong of a pull, but all things being equal, ceteris paribus, it will impact all relations because it exists the entire time. So if you have two countries that are culturally similar, they are bound to understand each other just a little bit more. And although over the course of a small or the short or medium term range, that may not have too much of a impact on the relations between those countries over the long term, it does, or it does impact an appreciable I guess, uh, movement on the course, on the trajectory of both countries. As they may move closer to each other, if the cultural understandings are bad, they move may, move may move farther away from each other. But it's always there. So if there are no positive relations, if there are no overriding other relations, the cultural aspect will take over or will exert its influence. And I think that's really the large takeaway that at least I have from Huntington's writings. Yeah, I agree with you, Stephen. I think um, I do agree with the fact that um, the first part of the book, I do agree more than well, the second part. <laughs> so I guess just to break it down for our listeners, um, Huntington starts with different parts in his book. And prior to the end of the Cold War, societies were divided by ideological differences, you know, such as the struggle between democracy and commun communism. And Huntington's main thesis, I guess I would say, is that uh, the most important distinctions among peoples are no longer ideological, uh, economical or political. It's cultural and new patterns of conflict will occur. Um, along these borders and boundaries of different cultures and patterns of cohesion will be found within these cultural boundaries. Basically, um, the, in the first chapter, Huntington is uh, dividing into eight major civilizations. So we have the Cynic, Japanese, Hindu, uh, Islamic, Orthodox, Slavic one, uh, Western, Latin American, and and I think a little bit of Africa. I, I don't remember that much, but I think so. And um, he divides all of these um, air parts and he talks about the idea of Western cultural hegemony and the concept of an established universal civilization. And I think that the key uh, to this chapter is that Huntington is talking about about the balance between modernization and westernization. So while the world is becoming more modern, it is simultaneously becoming less Western. And this is actually where I agree more uh, because he expands this idea in his uh, part two of this book. Uh, basically, he describes the Western decline. So the first is that the current Western decline is very slow. 
Uh, it's a slow process and it's not an immediate threat to the world powers. The second is that decline of power um, does not occur in a straight line. It could either reverse, speed up, or even take a break. And lastly is that the power of a state is controlled and influenced by the behavior and decisions of those holding that power in the state. Um, he touches a little bit on religion in this section, and um, I think this is where I kind of disagree with him because um, it, parts of it is that he contradicts to himself because he talks that religion is uh, the primary factor that can cause uh, development and it could um, guide life to a modern world. But then in the second world, he clearly focuses more on Islam uh, versus the West. So um, the West versus the Islamic world. And he even states that Islam um, does not allow societies to successfully develop and modernize. But I think that if we look into every religion, um, I don't, there's a clear distinction between, you know, modernization of the society. I think the two should be kept apart and shouldn't be noted in the political sphere. And um, another problem that I found is that it's mostly us versus them. That's the kind of approach I saw in this book. It's uh, more of looking us, the West, versus them, Islam, as the threat. And I think that it should be more looked at uh, the West versus Islam, not as a threat, but rather as a challenge that you can, um, you know, further improve relations with and kind of find diplomatic uh, solutions. Yeah, that was definitely one of the biggest problems that I had personally in reading it was that it was, um, as we in the academic field would call reductionist, where it kind of just ignores pretty much all of the outlying uh, factors and just focuses on one really simplistic argument. And that's kind of what got me is this idea of, well, it's the West versus Islam or the West versus the rest. He kind of has a hard time deciding which it actually is. Um, and the other big problem, I actually really agree with um, what you were saying too, Stephen, about um, I liked your analogy of, you know, the strong and weak nuclear forces. I think that that kind of um, that really plays into the fact that I feel like he dramatically overestimates the importance of culture in dominating world affairs. I mean, as we've seen in the past several decades, culture does have a pretty big influence, but, you know, ultimately it's it's still ideological, it's still economic, it's still nation states sort of driving this type of conflict. The other really big problem I had, and I'm not going to try to slam on Huntington too much, um, but it's going to become obvious I really don't like most of his ideas. Um, I really take issue with the way he divides these different cultures. So, um, you know, as you said, he has this the Western culture, Confucian, Japanese, Islamic, Hindu, Slavic, Orthodox, Latin American. And then he even goes on to say, and maybe an African yeah. culture. So he's not even really sure that <laughs> Africa has a culture, yeah. which I found pretty much astounding that he just writes off this entire continent as though oh, well, maybe they're a thing, but probably not really, which, of course, is the heart of Orientalism, right, is this type of ignorance of an entire culture and just 
pretty much brushing it aside as going, yeah, well, but they're Africa, right? They don't do anything except for Wakanda, obviously. They have plenty of cultural pull. Wakanda forever. Um, (laughs) Right. (laughs) But it just seems kind of random to me, right? Like, so Confucianism, so basically China gets a culture, Japan gets a culture, and so uh, so does India. And then Islam just gets this all over encompassing culture, even though, you know, the Sunni Shia divide is kind of ignored. I mean, he does mention that there are, quote, subdivisions, which, by the way, is a great song by the band Rush. But he, he says these these subdivisions, but then ignores that sometimes these subdivisions that people in the West might view as, oh, the Sunni Shia divide, maybe it's not that big of a deal. Um, the Sunnis would definitely think that they are a a different culture entirely from the Shia in many aspects. And so I feel like he's just kind of trying to draw in these large boundaries without really understanding what's actually going on there. And so we have Latin America just shoved together as one entity and China is one. And for some reason, Japan is completely different from all the others. But I think he even says it's sort of like half Western, half not, which I mean, sure, that might be true post-World War II, but pre-World War II, it's completely 100% different from the West. So, yeah, I, I feel like it's it's really strange how he tries to almost invent these cultures. I mean, they do exist in some respects, but I just don't see them as being, you know, the end-all, be-all that he seems to. Well, I think that the problem really comes from how he defines cultures and his uh, definition of how they are made. And that really stems from the idea that you have to have a power center for a culture to really be exerted. So, and that is actually another problem that I have with his uh, theory is that for any of these cultures to really be a prevalent and powerful influence on the rest of the world, they have to have a core state that pushes them. So for the West, it is uh, the United States, which... To be completely honest, I would consider the United States a separate culture from Europe myself. But again, that goes in the definitions. And uh, China obviously has a Confucian culture that they push. And he goes on to separate that from the South Asia and Japan. And really, he just he's defining the power reaches of individual countries, which I think would be much better explained as multipolarity. It is a... What he's trying to define is the areas of influence for rising powers or stronger powers and then defining them in terms of culture. So he says there is no culture in Africa. Well, there's actually no major hegemonic or pseudo-hegemonic power in Africa. There is no state that is able to take a ultra-leadership role in Africa because uh, it's just the power is too diverse between all the... So what he goes on to say is, well, there must be no overriding culture that binds them all together. Well, there's no political or military or economic power that truly binds them all to one state. And that's what's happening. And that's kind of where I get... And that's why he also defines like Portugal as a... Or not Portugal, I'm sorry. Brazil as a separate culture from the rest of Latin America. Well... There are other reasons other than just the Portuguese-ness of Brazil that why it would be different from Argentina and all other countries there. 
it, it is inherently a power struggle between those countries and who wants to be a who wants to be a hegemon but and yeah oh it, it just gets to and that's really a, one of the problems that i also have with his definition of islam like you were saying is that it, to have an islamic especially nowadays to have an islamic culture by his definition you'd have to have one overriding state which turkey saudi arabia qatar egypt are all vying for the uh sunni spot i i'm yeah sunni spot and then iran which i believe is a distinct culture however you want to define it it is a distinct culture because persian culture is very distinct from the rest of the world as the shia power but there's there's no real consolidation of power in that area and that it would be interesting to me honestly to get his thoughts as to as the islamic influence pervades further into southeast asia does that mean that this culture is moving over there because i i think he uses culture as i said very politically he does not use culture in the cult in the standard sense as how we'd want to say it or how we'd want to use it i definitely agree Stephen. i that's I think that is like one of the main problems is that Huntington is explaining his thesis basically on just like a unique categorization. He's putting all of these, um, you know, these three concepts such as civilization, culture, and identity. He doesn't define those. He just puts them all in separated boxes, just like with those um, parts of the world that he said with um, Hindu um, Confucianism, Islam, etc. He's not really expanding on them at all. And this type of categorization is really dangerous because you have to understand other um, aspects of the world. You know, people have, can be classified on the basis of nationalities, locations, there's classes, uh, social status, languages, you know, and all of these are important in establishing that identity that is um, relevant, especially in today's world and our world politics right now. And that's kind of the core of it, too, is this idea of he seems to assume that at the end of the day, someone's identity at the core of it is going to be that cultural factor. And I just don't see that as being the case in you know, a lot of different people in humanity. I mean, personally, my identity is a bit more national than this cultural idea. Uh, for other people, it's going to be strictly religious. For other people, it's it's going to be they don't really have any of these identities. They just care about, you know, going to work every day. Like, they have a different idea of this core fundamental you know, idea of identity, and it doesn't fit neatly into this little box. But I do, I do agree with um, what you were saying, Stephen, that it does seem to be really driven by nation-state. And so that makes more sense into why he seems to ignore Africa is that yeah there isn't one central African nation um, except for Wakanda, of Wakanda course, that has this <laughs> that has this African civilization and projects it out into the world I mean Confucianism obviously China is kind of at the forefront of that where it's pushing both a culture and a nation sort of identity and so they're very very successful at doing that um you know, to some extent, I feel that it still ignores other very strong identities, even within the region. So um, I know that the Vietnamese people would definitely, on the whole, take offense to the idea that they're pretty much marginalized and that they're just, you know, part of this Chinese culture. 
at the end of the day. Um, you know, I don't want to to pile on him too much because he does get a few things right, especially the idea of um, you know these forces of globalization that really do sort of upend the traditional order and make it more difficult for the West to truly have this you know iron grip on global hegemony. And I think the really and truly, I think the uh, the biggest problem with the book, and I don't think it is a I don't know how you want to define what type of problem it is, but this was written for policymakers and this was written for lawmakers. This was not written as a article for scholarly literature. He says that straight up in the first, what, 10 pages, this was not written to be a comprehensive or scholarly analysis of this entire decision or pursuit. Instead, what this is supposed to be is a policies prescription. So everything has to be changed into, into words that policymakers will understand because I know our listeners are going to be super surprised by this, but policymakers are not always the most informed on everything, so they have to have things dumbed down for them. And I think this is the classic case of a policy which was or a policy's prescription which was dumbed down and taken from multi-state polarity and other certain things moved into the cultural aspect because hey it's the 1990 it's 1990s everyone can get on board with culture and how these frictions between upcoming powers because he does define cultures in terms of power are going to be fighting each other or having competition with each other and i think to a large extent he's correct in that in that uh i guess idea we do have a lot of rising powers out there right now, and we are going to be, if not in hot conflict conflict with them, which I don't believe we will be in hot conflict with them, we will be in competition with them. China is rising, or it's still rising, but it has risen, but it is still rising. India is rising. Russia is making a go of it. Uh, Brazil is there for all the for all the problems in Brazil. They're making a go of it, and. We are going to be coming up against these countries who want to assert themselves into the world through national power. And that national power, when they really look at it, and these these countries, policymakers, for whatever I said about you have to dumb it down for them, when they enact this policy, it doesn't get enacted by them. They are told to enact it, and they send it off to the smart people in the policy area, policy world, whoever wonks, whatever. But anyways gets sent off to these other people who actually implement it very intelligently. And those intelligent people realize people are not persuaded by facts. They are persuaded by emotion. So what is the best way to assert Brazil's or India's dominance in a certain area? Well, by saying that the entire area is culturally more aligned with India than it is with any of these other countries. India has more reason to be in Bengal than the United States because it is culturally more uh, uh, affiliated with Bengal than the United States is. Or, I don't know, take Russia, for example, and all of Russia's near abroad. Russia has the idea that they should be able to move into these countries and the United States or NATO should not be able to because it is culturally more russian than it is western and i think that is i think that's completely correct and i think he as i said he he tries to outline it in a way that policymakers would understand 
but in doing so, I think he did poison the chalice to say. I think he he really changed it to a a conversation that you can't have. And that is what culture is more powerful than another culture? What culture is more willing or able to be dominant than another culture? And that gets to the really as I said, people are emotional, they're not logical. And when you're saying that your culture is being dominated by another culture, that goes right to your heart. And whatever you want to say, that's how you really, really start bad fights. That's how you get Ukraine. Well, that's what I was going to mention, Stephen. It's good that you mentioned Russia because why Why was that whole conflict in Ukraine? Because Ukraine was planning to join the EU, you know, a more a western uh, oriented uh culture and po- politics and russia just didn't want that you know it's it's again like the clash of cultures but what gets me is that you know it's, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy that he creates where he says you know these cultures are completely immutable and they will be in conflict with each other and there is no way for them to to get along and cooperate and you know live harmoniously and so it kind of becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy of everyone reads it and goes, well, this guy says that we can't work together, so obviously we can't work together. And you see that his thesis over the past several decades has been used to sort of just drum up this hatred for the other. I mean, the classic example is, you know, of people even in the current administration who just truly view world politics as a conflict between the West and Islam and they just see that these are two separate entities that can never get along with each other. And so those decisions further drive even more policy decisions that create this gap and make it even wider and even more difficult for you know, these different cultures, if you really want to call them that, to work together. This is so spot on, Nick. Like, seriously, I just wanted to say that yet until today, I feel like no administration has come close to embracing that hunting tony and view of the world you know before we had bush and obama that rejected um uh you know islam it was more of fighting violent extremists but not islam itself but when we have trump it's more of like campaign promise to explicitly link islam and terrorism and this was even mentioned in his inaugural address and i feel like the president's advisor are seriously endorsing that view of the world. And it's so dangerous. It really is. Yeah. And there was, I was watching some kind of documentary a couple of years ago. I think it was from BBC or something. So I'm going to assume it's a relatively um, you know, reasonable and trustworthy source, though obviously some people would completely disagree with me on that. <laughs> but they were even citing that Osama bin Laden himself was somewhat persuaded by this argument that he wanted to, create a clash of civilizations and so tried to you know go the west into and this titanic clash with islam and unfortunately to some extent he kind of succeeded well I, I okay so i do want to say real quick we risk giving a lot of credit post facto to osama bin laden in that case if you read the leading tower by uh, i'm gonna forget his name right now but read it it's a fantastic account of the rising of osama bin laden from the ranks of nothing to uh international terrorist and this guy wasn't didn't plan for all this to happen this was a self-imposed immolation that the west inflicted on itself this was not a planned thing that really osama bin Laden thought that everything through so we, we risk giving a lot of credit to someone who doesn't really deserve it in that 
But I will say, I, I don't really agree with you that I do agree and I don't agree with you that the Bush or the uh, Trump administration has taken the uh, ideas of Huntington to a new extreme. I do agree with you in that he definitely bought into that. As I said, this was a very, I believe this was a policy inscription that had to be reduced so policymakers could understand it. And in reducing it, it made it more dumb and it allowed different interpretations. And I think that the Trump administration took a really bad interpretation of it. But if you look at the South China Sea over the Obama administration, over the Bush administration, over the Clinton administration, you had a uh, definite push against uh, Chinese um, asserting their influence in that area, which was very much a regional power trying to exert itself or what you if if you want to phrase it by uh, Huntington standards, it was a culture trying to express itself against a dominant Western culture in that area, like the Philippines, and supersede them, take over. It was a clash of civilizations, if you want to say, because the United States pushed back against that. I, I believe, obviously, as I said, I believe this is very much a state-centric enterprise. I believe this was power politics, and I believe this was spheres of influence, and I believe this was who gets the South China Sea as a sphere of influence. But in the way that uh, that Huntington is describing this, that would also be considered a clash of civilizations. And those are a civilizational fault, the Philippines, where they had been fairly westernized, but they're also kind of, you know, Southeast Asia, and all these islands in between there, who do they really fall under? Who is the dominant culture? Who and China explicitly says those islands are our cultural ancestry. The string of pearls, everything inside there historically belonged to China. I don't know how you get more explicit as a clash of cultures than that. Obviously, as I said, I don't believe it's a real clash of cultures. I believe it's a clash of national interests. But I believe this has been happening for a long time, and it's... It's a dangerous misinterpretation by the uh, Donald Trump administration to say it is Islam is the threat. And I think it's a dangerous misinterpretation of anything Huntington was really going for. Or if he was going for it, Huntington was wrong. Let's be honest. But it has been happening for quite some time. Yeah, I definitely agree that it's there is some aspect of a clash of civilizations, but like you say, it's more driven by nation states rather than, you know, the sort of grassroots, the Chinese culture just does something. It's more the Chinese nation does something and then does that in the name of this overarching idea of culture. But as he defines culture, uh, the only real cultures are defined by powers, nation state powers. There's really no difference. Do you guys think that the United States is currently in like a civilizational struggle per se? <laughs> I, I think I think if you go by the Huntington standards of defining civilizations, and again, I want to point out for the listeners, Huntington does not define civilizations how you would imply civilizations. He does not think of a Western civilization in terms of hey, this is the white people of whatever, or hey, these are the whatever-whatevers. He thinks of it as there is a major power which exerts an influence from the West, and all that power that is influenced by the West, that is the Western culture. It's very power-driven. So 
kind of getting to, I know we're all kind of writing papers about this right now, the liberal international order receding is in and of itself a cultural conflict because it is the United States power across the world globally being pushed back by these regional powers such as China, such as Russia, such as um, India to some extent, uh, all over the country, all over the country, all over the world. They're trying to exert their power. And one of the ways they do this is through saying, oh, this is a cultural push. We want to take control of our destiny, etc., etc." Obviously, it's power politics. They want a multipolar world. It's better for them. But if you want to define it by Huntington standards, that is a clash of civilizations and a global clash of civilizations against the West, actually. So it would be the West versus the rest, but only because right now, by Francis, or by, uh, I keep wanting to call him Francis Fukuyama, uh, because of Huntington standards, the Western glo- the Western civilization is global. Right now it is. And so there is no other culture to fight. And once the Western culture recedes, once the power of the liberal international order recedes, once the power of Europe and the United States kind of goes back into a more of a sphere of influence for themselves, you are going to see China really much more start clashing with India. You're going to see Russia maybe even start clashing with China. I I know other people have different opinions on this, but I don't think Russia's a long-term player in that game. You're going to see Brazil clashing with who knows what, but you're going to see other regional powers try to start to dominate, and you're going to see more clashes of civilizations between differing civilizations. I guess the problem I have is just that you know, the United States is in a unique position where it could at least help manage that sort of Western, I don't want to call it decline, because it's really, I mean, relatively speaking, yes, but only because all the other powers are rising. It's not necessarily that the United States is just getting weaker. It's just everyone else is sort of starting to rise to meet its level. Um, <laughs> we're in a unique position to to help manage that and at least make sure that it doesn't spiral out of control and create you know, massive global conflict, unfortunately, you know, and that's the irony of this current administration is that we're doing everything we can to just sort of extricate ourselves from our own responsibilities and our own hegemony. And that's just the wrong way to go about doing that. I will disagree with you on that. And not to not to completely give away my upcoming paper that I'm going to be writing for the Orientalist Express, please <laughs> read. But anyways, um, I really do believe that the United States, by stepping away from the reins of the liberal international order, which had all these institutions which allowed it to project its power across the world, loses a lot of power because you lose power projection. And that can't be, that is unique to the United States' power. We are able to project power anywhere across the world. That is what made us what we were. And once you step away from these institutions, you lose the power projection. And you do lose qualitative and quantitative power from the United States. I do agree 100% that all these other countries are also stepping up. But if the United States had remained as a leader in the international liberal international order instead of trying to step away from it, I believe we could have uh, very much guided it, as you say, to a better place. But as of right now, I, we stepped away from it. We lost a lot of influence. We lost a lot of power. I don't see it. If we have a power level of 100 right now, once we step away from the liberal international order, we're going to have a power level of like, I don't know, 75 or something because the magnitude, uh, 
the magnification of the liberal international order was able to increase the power of the United States just through power projection. So we are experiencing a qualitative and quantitative decline of U.S. power. Yeah, I actually, okay, so I guess to clarify, I don't disagree with that. I think it's more like pre-2016, it wasn't inevitable that the U.S. would decline, just that others would rise to meet us. But now, post-2016, yes. I mean, oh, what we're okay, doing is self-inflicting wounds, and that is causing a an actual decline. Whereas that wasn't necessarily the inevitable, you know, outcome of what was happening. But unfortunately, the United States has just willfully decided that it will essentially decrease its own hegemony of its own accord i get that i agree with that i get that which which i find utterly maddening <laughs> if you think you find it maddening imagine everyone else that had all so much invested in this liberal international order just to see united states go peace i i say we just go back to offshore balancing because it's worked so well in the past i mean that's how we have uh, avoided um Threats such as Napoleon and Hitler, because offshore balancing always works before the fact, not after the fact. 100% definitely hmm. works, guys. Come on. So for, for our listeners who uh, aren't versed in the term of offshore balancing, do you want to just give a quick uh, quick definition? Yeah, sure. So offshore balancing was a strategy really, I would say, pioneered by the United Kingdom, not the United Kingdom, I'm sorry, Great Britain at the time as a way of creating a power balance on the continent of Europe. So say you had Germany, or it wasn't Germany at the time, but you had the German Federation versus Austria versus Russia versus France versus Spain. And whatever side had the most power, Britain being across the channel could just throw their weight behind the losing side and therefore maintain a balance of power and never have anyone dominate the entire continent of Europe bring this out uh, scale to the United States and what a lot of people propone to do is to use the United States as an offshore, ba offshore balancer, which would be to revoke every single alliance the United States has with any country across the world and make us very promiscuous in how we enter conflicts and very much power-based. So say China is fighting the, uh, the European Union for whatever reason and however it might be happening, it's happening. And the, and the European Union basically is winning. They are invading China. Shanghai has been taken. And I don't know, uh, uh, Beijing has fallen. There's a pop star running around in the entire place. In this case, the United States would be indebted to intervene on China's behalf, regardless of what the intentions of the European Union were, or regardless of what the intentions of the Chinese were, to maintain the international order, to maintain international power. I, I, I think that everyone can see where this could go horribly wrong, as in, hey, China has internment camps and is killing just thousands of Uyghurs, and we're going to intervene to stop that from happening. And the United States is like, whoa, 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 you can't actually intervene in China because we're not going to let that happen. Or there's many different combinations of scenarios which make that a horrible decision. It also works very retroactively. So take the exam example of the United States in World War II and World War I. We did act as an offshore balancer, 
And when did we enter the fight? After basically everyone had really, really started to get their butts kicked and a whole bunch of people died. It is only a retroactive solution. It's not a proactive solution. It doesn't prevent anything. It just stops the worst from coming. And now for our regular series we're calling Flashpoints. This is where we provide our quick takes on a variety of hot topics and events that are going on all over the world. So who wants to start? All right, let me just cover three countries that I think are not mentioned enough. The first one is Saudi Arabia. Finally, today from midnight, Saudi Arabian women are going to be allowed to drive. And this change has been announced since uh, last September, and Saudi Arabia issued the first licenses to women earlier this month. This was the only country in the world where women could not drive, and families had to hire private chauffeurs for their female relatives. Now, finally, after intense campaigns and activists, women can finally drive, and I feel like that's just such a historical break in that country second country were not as positive as the first news but uh the venezuelan crisis i feel like people are just disregarding what's going on in venezuela um for example yesterday the un said that the security forces have killed hundreds of um people and it said that in a report a lot of uh, young men have been killed during the operations in the poor districts. I mean, still, the situation is not changing in the country. People still can't buy uh, basic needs for their own and for their own families. So I, I encourage every listener to just at least understand the root of this crisis and just kind of pay attention to it more. I know there are different organizations that you can also... Um, give money to and charities to kind of help with that crisis so i think that'd be nice as well and the third news is what i actually read this morning north korea propaganda is actually changing its tune ever since um trump had had his meeting with um kim jong-un uh, north korea propaganda has been displaying uh very different things uh apparently well i guess this is not news but uh, it's been known that U.S. has been known, has been shown as this aggressor in North Korea, and there's been a lot of anti-West uh, posters and just various propaganda in the government. However, apparently, uh, a lot of people have said that this has been changing, and there's been banners and posters that are uh, showing economic development and um, just kind of progress in the country. So. I guess this is optimistic. I think it is. Yeah. Those are all my three flashpoints. On to you, Stephen. I have two. I have Yemen and yep. uh, the long-running JCPOA. So for Yemen, there, as I'm assuming most people know, there was an assault on the port of Aden this week that is expected to cause 
hundreds of thousands of more casualties from starvation and from uh, just civilian casualties in general. This assault is by the Saudi Arabian Armed Forces on the port of Aden. The Saudi Arabians are undertaking this, I guess, uh, effort in order to stop the ballistic missiles that are coming in or what they believe are coming in from the port of Aden, from Iran, and being fired into Saudi Arabia. So it's going to be something that we should really try to keep appraised of because this is going to be a major humanitarian humanitarian crisis. And it's going to be, I don't want to say interesting because that makes it sound much less horrific than it really actually will be. The second thing with the JCPOA is that France actually just announced this week, or one of the French uh, ministers announced this week, that most French companies will not be able to do business in Iran, even though the France is not revoking the JCPOA. As most listeners will remember, the United States revoked the JCPOA a little while back, but all other countries refused to do so. Now, it was expected that obviously U.S. Country, uh, US companies would not be able to work in uh, the Iranian country because it's, or with any Iranian companies, because that's just how sanctions work. Primary sanctions are when a country imposes sanctions directly upon a different country. So the United States imposing sanctions directly on Iran, so Iran can't do business anywhere else. Secondary sanctions would be sanctions that the United States imposes on companies that work with Iran or countries that work with Iran. So in that sense, France is saying that its companies will not be able to work in Iran because they fear the sanctions that are coming from the United States, which in essence really means that they cannot do any business with Iran and are, while not de jure sanctioning Iran themselves, are almost de facto sanctioning Iran because they don't want to be sanctioned themselves. And it's going to be very interesting to see if this continues. Um, I know we've talked to a couple people in a couple EU countries that are saying that there's just not really enough will or political will to move forward with this on in several EU countries. And it'll be interesting to see where the JCPOA goes from here. All right, so my flashpoints are, um, first and foremost, uh, the United States and the Human Rights Council of the United Nations. So um, I think it was just this past week, or maybe the week before, the United States officially removed itself from the Human Rights Council, which um, is kind of a big deal since this is supposedly the council that um, tries to fight against just egregious human rights abuses. And of course, the reason the United States withdrew was because of its criticism of Israel for um, you know, what's happening with the settlement building and the continued blockade of Gaza and that sort of thing. Um, I'm actually, I take a little bit of a different stance than um, a lot of people I know where I, I do criticize the United States a little bit for just pushing that, oh, well, it's because it's against Israel. Um, it is... I mean, the vast majority of what the Human Rights Council does, does criticize Israel. So there is a little bit of a disparity there. Um, but part of the problem I see, too, is that the Human Rights Council really hasn't been great about actually standing up against human rights abuses. So there's a lot of nations um, 
that are part of this council but still commit egregious human rights abuses and those particular abuses just aren't called out because of course the nations of that council aren't going to call them out and so it's it almost becomes a sort of well it's great for punishing the loser of a conflict who engages in human rights abuses but it's not exactly the best for actually enforcing norms about protecting human rights around the world um i still think it's a bad idea since the more the united states extricates itself from these types of councils and these institutions i mean now it has no say in controlling that at all and so i'd rather have a place at the table of a flawed organization than no place at the table at all and so my other flashpoint is just the uh dispute recently between the United States and the G7 nations. Um, So the G7 nations are essentially kind of the core of um, the powerful nations, including the United States and um, Western Europe. And so it's it's sort of an alliance. It's a bit of an informal alliance, but essentially these nations coming together for uh, security and economic purposes. It used to be the G8, which included Russia, but then, of course, Russia was removed because of what was happening in Ukraine. Um, and so, very recently, just before the um, just before the summit with Kim Jong Un, um, the United States was part of a G7 summit, and it went pretty much disastrously. So the president was trashing the other G7 allies and essentially saying that Russia should be invited back into uh, the organization which is extremely problematic because, of course, Russia has been causing all of this chaos and all of these issues with so many of the other G7 nations. Um, It was almost a way of just poisoning the well by even suggesting that Russia be invited back into this organization. One would hope that the relationship between the U.S. and the G7 improves after this. And that's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to thank our guests Stephen and Valida for their insight and analysis, as well as our listeners and readers of the blog. Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com, like and share on our Facebook group, or tweet us at orientalistexp. Our podcast is now available on Stitcher and iTunes, so subscribe to our RSS feed, which is hosted by Squarespace. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.